Well, welcome everyone to another podcast on Babble. This is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And we are switching gears back to Deep Space Nine after a successful season of Voyager. Um, and we're going to do the season four premiere, Way of the Warrior. Uh, this is, did I say this is Matthew? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we, they know who we are. We've already um, introduced ourselves. Okay. Yeah. Um, Don't worry, folks. I'm here all night. Um, so it's a movie length episode, uh, which hasn't really been done except for the two, uh, modern era premieres. Am I right? No, uh, wait. Uh, the finales had, had them also. Right. So that would, so there's, they've only done it three times up to now, um, or four, if you count, uh, yeah, so, because Voyager premiered by this point, so yeah, all three modern iterations, series premieres, and then all good things. Um, we, we were Otherwise, talking, yeah, you know, split them up into two episodes, uh, so, I mean, what do you think about the choice? Do you think it's, like, a signal to the viewers or something? Uh, I remember thinking, okay, it's an event, the season's restarting, and uh, there, there's definitely a... Uh, shift in you know we're bringing on a new character i think there's a uh not not necessarily change in the narrative style but you know they're they're bringing in a whole new plot element uh to the story so like i enjoyed watching it certainly a great deal at the time i think it, it certainly held my attention the entire um you know 90 minutes um we were talking about this before we started recording i a lot of two-parters run into trouble where um, the setup or the payoff comes in a little lacking. Like either they were trying to uh, stretch one episode's idea into too much, or a B plot, like in Birthright, where the B plot just got completely dropped uh, yeah. in the second half. So, like doing it in one go, I think sort of keeps a narrative cleanness, for lack of a better word, that I think helps. Um, if nothing else, and I, I realized this watching uh, the movie version of Best of Both Worlds when they aired it as a single shot, those two episodes were designed to have that climactic moment, and when you excise them, it actually hurts the scene, I think. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Not having the music cue and the to be continued and all that after Riker says fire doesn't give the moment the room it needs to breathe that I think the script actually calls for, where in re the reverse problem is with, since you don't have to worry about breaking it in half uh, for two episodes, you don't have to artificially have a climax exactly 50% through. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Apparently, um, Paramount had been sort of grumbling about the ratings for the first three seasons of Deep Space Nine. Uh, and, you know, it certainly makes sense that DS9 would have somewhat lackluster ratings given that it's kind of competing for mindshare with TNG, which was still on the air. Right. Uh, at least for the first two seasons, am I right? Yeah. And then, you know, it's so totally different. And as we have <laughs> uh, investigated, there were such long stretches of kind of craptacular episodes. So, you know, it, it makes a certain amount of sense that they were struggling. Um, and so Paramount said, we want you to shake things up. They didn't say what, they didn't say how, you know, which to their credit, uh, you know, they, they let the creative staff just sort of take that edict and go with it the way they wanted to. And so 
you know, they debated a few different strategies. They were talking about making the Vulcans leave the Federation, which would have been a horrendous idea. Uh, partially because the Vulcans have figured so little in all of the modern era Star Trek. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's as, like as a piece, it basically yeah. never appeared except for one episode, you know, maybe Sarek and Unification in TNG. You know, maybe the, the little bit in, was it Gambit? Yeah. Um, you know, but they certainly were not major players, and they have definitely not been major players in the first three seasons of Deep Space Nine. And so it just would have been really weird. Um, and so, you know, apparently Iris Stephen Bear said, you know, hey, remember the Dias cast? Remember this line about the Federations and the Klingons being the only powers left in the quadrant? Um, you know, let's make it the Klingons, you know, which made much more sense because, of course, Worf had been a major character. There had been several uh, deep Klingon politic, you know, stories. Um, so it just it made loads more sense, and I'm I'm really glad they made the choice they did. Yeah, and I uh, guess Berman suggested that that would be the opportunity to transition Worf to Deep Space Nine. Uh, and I got to say, I remember thinking that. Um the the line from Dai's cast when it became clear that the Klingons were going to be the centerpiece of the story and the eventual you know uh, tying it into the Dominion plot I thought oh okay this makes sense that the Klingons would be the Dominion's next target for you know upsetting the apple cart and that 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 made sense um, I remember thinking when because obviously they hyped it it wasn't like you know new Deep Space Nine star watch to find out who it is they flogged. Yeah. Michael Dorn's addition to the cast several months in advance. Um, so I, I, I will say, I think they picked the best TNG person to bring to Deep Space Nine because that character always had, like, the, the whole point of Worf's character is him balancing his Klingon heritage and his Federation responsibilities. So a show that shows a lot more, like, it, all the other DC, uh, next gen characters are a little too happy for Deep Space Nine, you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. Well, and they were embroiled in interpersonal relationships. Like, you can't bring Data without Geordi. You can't bring Troy or Riker without the other. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, you know, you're not going to get uh, Patrick Stewart, but you also can't excise Beverly from that dyad, you know? Right. So it just, none of, you know, so who do you have left? Wesley? You know, I would have been okay with that, but. <laughs> It certainly wouldn't have been the big impact that they wanted among current fandom in the, right. in the mid '90s, um, and I don't think Will Wheaton would have come back. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, basically he's the outsider, and this is the outsider show, you know. So yeah, it it does make sense. I do remember feeling that it was stunt casting and initially not liking it, uh, but we'll get to whether that's justifiable uh why don't we just go ahead and start okay are you ready i am all right so we're going to press play all together three two one press play and we have a little in memory i'm sorry to say i don't know what role those guys played i assume it was some sort of production staff that's a really obvious corridor mat on both ends <laughs> It's been really obvious every time I've seen it, but I just I feel I have to point it out. It's really obvious. So, you know, we're starting off with a little change of pace. 
uh, phaser sweeps. Of course, we see the newly bald pate of uh, Avery Brooks. It's so weird. Every time I watch Deep Space Nine, I'll start at the beginning and get reused to him with hair and then get to here and have to get reused to him being bald again. Huh. I think it's a flattering look. I, I know that I, I believe the thinking was, uh, and I know Avery Brooks is bald and wears a goatee, you know, personally. Um, so I think the thinking was he would look too much like the character he had previously portrayed on Spencer for Hire, so they didn't want him to look like that at least right away. I will say I think this is a more flattering look for him. Yeah, I agree. It makes him look a little more mature. Yeah. Um, so here's Dr. Bashir with his phaser rifle. Now, I just want you, I want to make a note of this because this is a good effect, by the way. Oh, yeah. The, the, the doctor coming out of this the panel. Like Ros Rosetta Stone, whatever yeah. that is. It's got multiple languages. Um, you know, I just want to point out Dr. Bashir's presence here because later in the episode they spend like half a minute talking about how he doesn't really fight. Hmm. I, Kira's hair is just a hot mess. It's like kind of a mullet with, I don't know what's going on. It's not good. I didn't mind this one. I liked it better than the overly short haircut. Um, For the amount of time they must have put into like making that look like a perm or whatever, it no. So we have Quark here. Um, you know, they're running drills for changelings, okay? And, you know, this is a nice way of showing that they're continuing the story, things are still tense, uh, you know, so I'm okay with it. Yeah. I'm just not okay with her hair. She's wearing a new uniform, apparently. Uh, did they change it again? Yeah, I think they softened the lines. Uh, and, t you know, to the actress's, you know, benefit, she's a shapely woman and a trained dancer, and the uniform was a little boxy. Yeah. Um, I always, for some reason, I always liked uh, Cisco's civilian wear. Like, <laughs> those are some pretty intense patterns he is matching, but somehow I kind of like them. Uh, it's, uh, it looks like he sort of cannibalized his couch or something. Yeah. Uh, it's not quite a Cosby sweater. Yeah, I, I will say uh, uh, Cassidy looks fantastic. That is, that's a good color for her. It, it's a very, very fetching design. That's a jewel tone, right? Would that be? There's some jewel... future wrapping paper. Yeah, I, I love future wrapping paper. It has to have a hologram so we know it's the future. Yep. See now, she just brought the gift bag. Tholian silk. Also in a pretty intense pattern. Well, the man knows what he wants. Yeah. We talked about this before when they were starting to build this relationship. I, I always liked Cisco and Cassie. I think the actors had good chemistry. I think their relationship played as organic and real and not just dictated by the script. Like this little, like it's cute that you get him a baseball cap. It, it, it just, that's a very, it's a nice touch. Now, refresh my memory. You know, they haven't really sort of consummated things yet, have they? At least not obviously. Um, it, no, certainly not on screen. Uh, I think the last comment we got was that when, uh, during the adversary, Cisco said he was going to take Cassidy to uh, 
Game Seven of a World Series on the on, in the Hall of Suite. Yeah, yeah. So it it seems like they're kind of, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing because it could be a little boring, but it seems like they're skipping a few steps here and just sort of moving the relationship a little further. I, I you know, and that's fine. As a viewer, we're just supposed to take it that time has passed. Right. And they are in a relationship. Right. We didn't jump to married or living together, so I, I'm. I've always assumed the summer breaks lasted as long in the story as they did in real life. You know, like we actually, this was actually, you know, three months later. Yeah, I always take it as like three to six months, but not quite a year. You know? Right. It's a very long scene, I have to say. Uh, we're already at minute five, and we're not to the new horrendous. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't dislike it. I, I, I mean,. I, I don't. It, it, it's the theme song. It doesn't bother me. It, uh, I, I like Deep Space Nine's theme song. The variation doesn't. I don't even really pay attention to it as, as different. I, I certainly don't feel the outrage you feel. Well, it's not outrage quite. It's just. Well, I, I mean, we'll just wait till the scene starts. But um, this is just a really long teaser that doesn't tease a whole lot yet. You know, it's like the teaser could have started here. You know, mm. could have had 30 seconds. Well, I think given the length of the episode, like the teaser doesn't have to tease quite so hard. You know, you know what I mean? Where it's like we're not sparking a 45 minute story. We're building an hour and a half long story. So yeah. I think, you know, there's a little more room. Uh, so there's the Klingon flagship, the Negvar. And I uh, love nice that. They, I love that they used the model from All Good Things. That delighted me as a child. Mm. And then, of course, we have uh, J.G. Hertzler in his first appearance. Uh, it is his first appearance as Martok. He played the Vulcan captain of the Saratoga. Oh, God, yeah, with that hair. And so, okay, this is a good tease. And, then, and it's an awesome effect. Like, it's, 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 it's well staged. There's real depth of field there. I like all of the, the ships moving. It's not just a flat mat of static ships. I love that whole moment. All right, so I don't dislike the graphics at all. You know, in fact, they've undergone, I would say, significant improvement. Generally, there's a lot more going on. You see people like working on the oh, station. Oh yeah, the little worker suits. bees and stuff. Yeah, love the new visuals. Absolutely. New, new ship flybys, new ship dock. You know, like all that stuff is great. What it's just this beat is so ill married to the orchestral theme it just it's like it, it starts right now it's like dun 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 and it's just like i'm sorry there there is no beat yeah it's a, it's a, yeah it doesn't bother me but i do yeah, the visuals are great um i remember when i first saw the credits i i always wondered if the rest of the cast was pissed that michael doran gets earlier billing but then i realized like next gen everything after the captain is in alphabetical order yeah it's just alphabetical and uh, is this where what um, ship is that triangular ship i think it's bajoran i believe it is a bajoran impulse ship uh that's yeah. been seen before uh yeah the little dudes in spacesuits like pushing stuff along off just looks awesome yeah i'm pretty and, sure that's uh, cgi too. Yeah, in incorporating the defiant finally um yeah. Well, just generally, the the passes on the model, which might also be CG, look more detailed. Yeah. 
Everything mm-hmm. looked like it got well. Everything this season is, but like from Die's cast forward, everything felt more vivid. Like the show finally hit that groove, and I remember thinking that at the time that the opening credits kind of reflected this, you know, improved show we were now getting. And I believe this is also the first time that Alexander Siddig is credited that way in the opening credits. Yeah, he did change his name. Um, he said he just drew Alexander out of a hat. Uh, okay, so I like this scene. This is like the sort of low-key scene that the teaser could have been, you know? Um, things are too quiet, which is, of course, you know, sort of the old Western joke. You know, I don't like it. Things are too quiet. Um, it's nice. Uh, there's a lot of nice little quirk scenes in this episode. Uh, anyway, as far as the theme music goes, it's just like, I feel like someone had a meeting and they were like, okay, we need to jazz this up. You know, we need to get people more excited by this theme song. It's kind of boring compared to TNG. Okay. We need to improve ratings and we need to up the excitement quotient. And so then like someone just went with their like Casio keyboard and like, you know, recorded a beat onto a MIDI machine or something. And then they had a second meeting and they're like, yeah, that's okay. You know, we'll see if we can improve it. And then they just never got back to it. That that's, that's how that theme song feels to me. <laughs> and I'm going to have the same objection when they do it to Enterprise's theme song. It's like, just because you add a beat doesn't make it a different piece of music. It just makes it a different piece of music with like Groucho Marx glasses on, you know? So, anyhow. Uh, and Quark's instincts are, are accurate here. Right. You know, the Klingons are up to something. There are about a million guest stars in this episode. We're like, we're like two minutes, three minutes into the actual story, and we're still getting list of guest stars. Um, well, what'll be interesting is to see if... Uh, this episode eats up a lot of budget and we get a lot of like bottle shows and no guest star shows later in the season. Yeah. Okay. I've long ago let go of any concerns about what color Klingon blood is because down that path lies madness. (laughs) I, I will say that between the introduction of the blood test in adversary and the information we eventually learn about Martok, the blood test right now, right now as we're watching it, is over for 2. Yeah. Um, just, just I've always up. had questions about sharing the same knife. Yeah, oh god, I know. Everyone would get hepatitis. In this, in, in the Klingon, blood-borne diseases would spread through the Empire like wildfire. Well, it's just, and, you know, do they have, like, a dermal regenerator? Do they, uh, if, if you're going to prick yourself, like, do the pinky. Like, right. don't do it in the most important part of the hand that, like, holds weapons and... Right, you know. right. Okay, I did like the scene with Cisco and Cassidy, because if nothing else, it, they did work in some hints of what was going on, like, upset in the Cardassian Empire that, may, you know, that was that's being discussed now. So, like, there was something there. It wasn't just filler. Yeah. yeah I love those pan shots. I also love this scene. This scene... <laughs> cracks me up. Richard and I have discussed this. Those are very attractive men. Do you like the... Uh... The, t- the trill spots going all the way down? I, yeah. I, don't, I don't dislike it. I think... 
It looks weird on a dude, I have to say. Well, they're thicker bands than I think they're giving uh, Terry Farrell, especially like down the neck and torso, like their broader stripes. Um, like especially at the shoulder, you can see it at the shoulder blades. Like hers are like these like you know inch inch and a half thick lines. They're like shoulders, but like backpack straps on the two dudes. Yeah. I I did appreciate even at the tender age of twelve thirteen that it was like finally some beefcake. I'm like oh so many so many green women and push up little. A little something for the rest of us. Thank you. I, you know, these swimsuits are kind of funky. They're a little overcomplicated. It, it, this is the classic example of a man dressing a woman who's trying to look sexy because an actual woman would look at that thing and, and, and think, dear God, it would be incredibly uncomfortable and complicated to wear. Whereas a man thinks, oh, it looks cool. But, but I, yeah, the, there, there's a lot going on there. What do you think they're trying to accomplish with this scene? Um... I like the relationship between Kira and Dax. There are several moments, like in Blood Oath, where they obviously have some rapport and respect for each other, and you know, and I think they were trying to build up this friendship with stuff like this, or like uh, like the the teaser to Second Skin is that Dax is taking Kira um, anti grav sailing. Like they're trying to build this kind of girlfriend relationship, like something like Troy. You you can see them doing the same scene with uh, Troy and Crusher. Sure. It it just sticks out to me because it's like with Worf coming on the show, uh, I believe Nana Visitor said, you know, in some interview, you know, like I, I feel like it seems obvious that Bajor is going to, you know, recede a little bit as a story, you know, focus yeah. because of all the Klingon stuff. And it shows that she's actually a very keen sort of analyst because what she said was, you know, there's a hardcore group of people who really like the Bajor stuff, and then there's a lot of people who just don't care, uh, which that's a very perceptive thing to say. Yeah. Um, especially when you're an actor who doesn't necessarily, like, have to even understand what story you're acting. Um, there's just a lot of, like, filler here. Like, so I, I felt like maybe they were trying to do something with Kira's character, like soften her or something. Um, and then this scene, too. Well, I, I think a lot of this felt like, um, you got to remember, this is the season premiere. I think it has a sense of you get a little leeway to catch me up. It's, it's like the first day back at school. You get a little... Or they're reintroducing characters to potential new viewers or something. Right, or they're... they're and all of this makes sense because they're following up on relationships that were established and or, and now expanded here. Like, you know, Odo's last, like one of the last scenes in the, in Adversary is, not in, um, Dai's cast is, you know, that they should have breakfast together. So I think they're kind of going down the list to give all, almost all of the characters a conversational scene to, catch everything up and give us dribs and drabs of what's going on in the, with the political situation. Yeah. I mean, I, it, we're uh, 13 minutes in 15 minutes, oh, 16. We're okay. 16. Minutes. I, I have spent entertaining 16 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly yeah. reasonably entertaining. Uh, the dramatic, the dramatic quality of the universal translator. Love it. 
I wonder why Ensign Saunders is looking for more. Whoever Ensign Saunders yeah. is. It's just like, why would a Starfleet personnel have anything well, to do with Morn? Morn is apparently very popular. Yeah. They did a great job with all of the assorted Klingon makeup. Nothing looked, you know, phoned in or, you know, half-assed because there were going to be 400 of them. Like, everything looks really good. That's something Rick Berman said about Michael Westmore. Like, Klingons and Ferengi especially. You know, you could have a dozen or two dozen in an episode and nothing would ever look the same. I gotta wonder, like, who's directing traffic with all these ships yeah. floating around. I guess that's what the station does. I will say, I think this is the final transition. Like, if you, I've been rewatching uh, season three and four of Next Gen because I have the Blu-rays, and Klingon hair was much stringier. Like, there wasn't this, you know, enormous, like, perm thing going on. Like, I think this is, a like, Deep Space Nine is where that Klingon makeup gets really rejiggered, that final step. Yeah. But I got off several cutting remarks, which no doubt did serious damage to their egos. That's pretty funny. It is. Well, if nothing else, the season premiere has Garrick in it, and that, you know, makes we me We always happy. like Garrick, that's true. I hope this is the signal of more Garrick to come. I mean, basically, in season three, anything with Garrick has, with the exception of that one episode in The Doctor's Mind, uh, has been a good episode. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like uh, Garrick and Bashir's rapport. There's there's the sparring, but not the... like Bashir has certainly grown up in this relationship a little. He's no longer as credulous or confrontational as he would have been in, like, first or second season, so it, the banter is much more fun. I'm sorry, that hair is just horrifying. That's among the worst female hair I've ever seen on Star Trek. Really? Let's not let's not say things we can't take back. I'm not saying it's the worst. I'm just saying it's. I, I don't mind it. I think it's. I think it's better than some of her previous hairstyles. It's in the conversation. Uh, that I was like, an interesting camera move. Yeah, I like Dax's hair a lot because they they finally figured out this like, it's not a straight ponytail. There's like a. Some something like her hair is like pinned back and up and then clasped with that jewel piece, and it's a it's a very flattering look because the ponytail has a thickness to it and it frames her obviously very attractive features quite nicely. So home run with Dax's new ponytail. Yeah, uh, this there, was there a, are a lot of split diopter effects in this episode. A uh, lot. I, I love the uh, view screen effect there. The the pan around the two ships and the tractor beam looked really great.
Yeah, so, um, you know, Cisco is sort of using the Defiant to rescue Cassidy Yates. I mean, I guess it's something he might do for anybody because yeah, the Klingons are sort of usurping uh, Bajoran authority. Well, I mean, yeah, a, a civilian ship that left 20 minutes ago now sending out a distress call. I think, I think once Worf gets there, he might send Worf to do it, but I would see him responding to any civilian's distress call. I wonder what the Zosa name is all about. Uh, it's a um, South African tribe. Okay. I, I, I think I had to look that up in an actual encyclopedia uh, <laughs> when I was 12. Like, if, or if, if I used the internet, I looked it up in, like, Webcrawler. Maybe Alta Vista. Yeah. <laughs> Ask Jeeves. You're right. Do you see all these diopter effects I'm talking about? I will say, uh, I, I see them now that you pointed them out. They're not as jarring to me as they were in a motion picture. Yeah, well, they've gotten a little bit better at them. And it's in, it's in a much smaller field of view, the 4x3, yeah. instead of 2.3 to 1 or 2.25 to 1. Yeah, I'll say from, from off, even the little bits there, like the ship recoiling um, when the tractor beam uh, releases, that looked great. My only um, complaint was he was, like, neither Cassidy nor the Klingon are on a bridge there in front of the, like, generic background wall that other ships tend to be and that always annoys me a little yeah it's like where is she sitting maybe their bridge doesn't look like this i guess yeah like even this little moment here and Dax looking up at him it, it, it's it's nice relationshipy stuff that's not schlock ear forced yeah I agree so there's unclaimed space outside of Bajoran territory well I always thought um, when it's particularly when it comes to defending borders or tra or routes or interstellar space that there's simply too like, like the, the body the geopolitical body known as the Federation is made up of, you know, say, a hundred worlds. It can't be a single, like, toroid of space inside of which the Federation has perfect control. There is simply too much volume of interstellar space for there to be that... Do, do, do you get what I'm saying? Like, I yeah. really... I, I think of... Since we use the Navy analogy for Starfleet so often, I think a good way to view space and political control would be you know 17th 18th century sailing ships where you know there are there are certainly places like islands that you know various governments control but there's a big ass ocean in the middle where effective like control... international waters or right something. right i i think that would be a far more effective way to think about you know a nation's borders in this context because trying to create like this single contiguous body with an almost in, literally incomprehensible volume of space in between, just doesn't make any sense. It, it's why things like the neutral zone or like the sensor nets never quite make sense because uh, in a two-dimensional map, having a 
row of sensors would make sense. In three-dimensional interstellar space, there would be no way you could have enough sensors to, to do that. Yeah. So there was the transition here. Right. Uh, the justification for Worf is that Curzon once told me that the only people who can deal with Klingons are other Klingons. Um, so Worf's makeup is definitely evolved a bit. Yeah, yeah. His yeah. nose is a bit more of a hook nose, and his eyebrows have just bushed out. <laughs> I like Quark there for some color commentary. Um, yeah. I, I, I think the transition's good, and Picard certainly explicitly relied on Worf's knowledge of the Klingon Empire and his Klingon... Like, like there, there's a, enough of a precedent for this that it doesn't feel forced in the story. Well, you know, I like that they mentioned that the Enterprise has been destroyed, you know? Yeah. And so that does mean he might be unattached or something, you know? They, they mentioned that he's on Boris, like that, that's like... Yeah, this, that's this, a great continuity touch. Love that. Right. This is respectful. This isn't like... Uh, I'm trying to think of, a, of an, an example where it would just be schlocky, and it just this isn't it. This, this is good. Well, like Q and... Uh, yeah. Was it Q, yeah. Q-less? Yeah. Or Loxana Troy. <laughs> <laughs> so he's considering resigning his commission, which, of course... He's done, like, eight times already. I think he's only done it that one time. <laughs> he's been late other times. He was late. That was it. That said, you know, uh, I do feel like they're writing him pretty well. Yeah. You know, like, the question for any story like this is, does the story have a right to exist, you know? Q-less did not have a right to exist. It did not advance the character of Q at all, and in fact, it sullied the character of Q. You know, so the question here is, does this advance the character of Worf? Does it do it in a respectful way? Does it usurp anything that's going on on Deep Space Nine, which is another thing that Q-less did, was it just took attention away from Deep Space Nine characters? Well, uh, what I like about this story, and we were talking about this when we did the review of... Um size cast and improbable cause there's this i think deep space nine stories eventually become these like grand epic sweep up the character kind of stories and this is a this is a good early example of it where you know we're all hunkered down for the coming whatever with the dominion and the way it manifests itself is the klingons egging themselves to war with cardassia on using the threat of the dominion to justify it so uh, th there's a certain amount of, like, the scope of the narrative there is interesting, because in reality, it's not like you only have one conflict at a time. There's lots of them, and they interact with each other. So I, I like the idea that the story, like, it, it didn't feel like a U-turn or abandoning the Dominion story. It felt like an interesting and dramatic wrinkle to the story. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um I like the fact that Cisco is giving Worf advice. You know, he's been around the block a little bit more. He also is considering resigning. All that. I, you know, that's the. I dumbest... find it weird that Worf would say he doesn't play games. I, I also think the line it's like poker with pointed. Like that's the dumbest law. I hate that law. <laughs> like, first of all, Worf knows how to throw things at a target. He just does. He he just does. 
Though him clearly overdoing it was pretty funny. Okay, this cracks me up. He kissed me. I'm a married woman. <laughs> so that's funny, and the costumes are hilarious. Nice hat. That's a very worth line. Yeah. So we get the Curzon Dax connection. Um... <laughs> okay, I looked that up. Uh, that is actual Klingon, and it means yes, but I'm better looking. <laughs> okay, well, that's actually pretty funny. <laughs> I'm kind of annoyed by this story thread of, like, Klingons throwing their weight around on a station. I just feel like they could have gotten to the space story. You know? I'm, I do like what happens here. You know, the way he gets in front of Martok. Yeah. You know, I think Michael Dorn must do a lot of his own physical acting, and uh, he, he's pretty good at it. Yeah. So here's a little tiny beat where Dax seems to be interested in one. Yeah. Okay, so that that's the... I believe that is actually the first time we see the mechless. Yeah. And, I, and Michael Dorn pretty much asked for it. He, he wanted a weapon that would be more individually identifiable with Worf as opposed to all Klingons, and I, I'm guessing would just be easier to use than, than the Batleth. Okay. So, you know, I like the way this scene plays out. Now that you're here, I have no further need of it. You know, it's, it's like Worf understands, you know, Klingon tradition. Right. <laughs> I've talked about this before, but one of, there's an interview with, uh, I think it's either Robert O'Reilly or J.G. Hertzler, where they talk about all of the uh, stable of Klingon actors um, have Shakespeare, Shakespearean backgrounds, and it makes sense because Klingons are very Shakespearean people. Um, so just watching the scene, it doesn't read as overacting or schlocky or just shouting. It's very... It's very Klingon acting, but I'm engaged the entire time. Yeah. Um, they've been consistent with the tone, you know? It's it's clear that Klingons just tend to talk like this, as opposed to, you know, these are just really antsy Klingons or something. Right. They, 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 every, every Klingon talks like he's delivering a soliloquy. Like, there's this, you know... Or, like, everything's an oration with these people. <laughs> well, even, like, Klingon scientists, you know, like in, uh, what's it? Suspicion. 
No, um, the drum head. Oh yeah. You know, Jadan. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like a Klingon scientist and then he gets caught in espionage and it's like, you know, the Klingon blood is, you know, withering and dying. It's like, everybody talks like this apparently. Yeah, JG JG Hertzler. That's it. Say that ten times really yeah. fast. Um, it's uh, you know he can really hold his own. <laughs> so basically, we're getting all wharf scenes now that we've switched to this sort of wharf aspect of the story. I like that they brought back Skeletor from his calisthenics program. Yeah, I'm happy they didn't bring back the swamp. I was never a huge fan of the swamp. Well, but apparently this is her program. Right. Oh, right, right. But still has Skeletor. Do they use this cave set as other things in Deep Space Nine? Just um, lit differently? Like, it's, it's got kind of an orangey hue to it. Yeah, it, it's always where Worf and Dax work out. I believe it's where... I believe it's the cave... No, no. They didn't show... No, it's the cave where Dax fights Koloff uh, to get him to agree for her to come yeah. on a mission in Blood Oath. But is, is it the cave where, like, Odo went to see Deep Throat mm -hmm. and, you know, get information and stuff? Um, I don't know. That one definitely had that high ledge. Um, this one seems a little shorter, but I'm sure they can redress things pretty easily. If you really look closely from that rear angle... Uh, I think that was a dude with Dax's hair. <laughs> <laughs> if it was a stunt woman, we're, we're sorry. The camera angle is a little weird. Um, no, maybe it's a woman. I like this ensemble on Worf. That's uh, uh, better yeah. than his white workout jammies. Well, it's basically the same outfit in different colors. So Yeah, yeah it's just more dramatic. Yeah. It's slimming. So here's that we learn that uh, Kern is on the High Council now. See, and this is just good dialogue. Like it, 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 it makes Dax look better because she, the character, is established as being conversant in Klingon culture, and it's a good idea. And so we're getting a. This song was in Birthright Part Two. Was it? Maybe. Maybe hmm. not. It feels of a piece, though. Oh, totally. I don't know about the headbutt. Well, they've established Klingons do this yeah. before. I wonder who that actor is, because he looks really familiar as a Klingon, and I'm wondering if we've met him before. So we're talking about how stories are important to the Klingons. I do kind of wonder when Worf would have had the opportunity to hear this guy tell that story over and over. Yeah. Because he was on Galt, and then he was on Earth, and then he was in Starfleet. I don't know. Maybe on Boreth or something. I, I wish they would have established that this guy was like a higher up. Um... Because does every Klingon... Right, right, because that, 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 that is some serious, like, 
intelligence work if you can keep that many people quiet. Well, and Klingons are sort of notoriously... Braggarts? Well, loose cannons, you know. And blabbermouths? Yeah. Well, it, well sure. They're, they're braggarts and they, they like to tell stories, so it would make sense that they would boast. So I like I like all of Worf's interactions so far. He's interacted interestingly and appropriately with all the crew members he has interacted with. He's clearly friends with O'Brien. He understands the chain of command with Cisco. He's gruff with Odo. Like everything, it doesn't feel as shoehorned because he's fitting into the established dynamics so so well. I agree with that. I just I I question having so many wharf scenes in a row. It, I suppose that's the theme of the episode, the way of the warrior. Like you know, okay. Um, it's just been like, if this were in a regular episode, it would clearly be a wharf episode. Right. You know, some nice uh, investigation by Odo. I mean, I guess it's like they have to establish that Odo is chief of security here. Right. And that Worf is going to be whatever they call him later, like strategic attache or something. Right. I I also like that they have an episode where Worf can't let go of being chief of security for an episode. I thought that was a that was a nice touch. Yeah. Have they changed Odo's forehead ridges? Yeah, they they definitely softened it up over the years. I don't know if they've softened it. Like, did they add the permanent furrows? Yeah. Hmm. I think they have. That, maybe, that's really sticking out to me right now. Maybe it's just uh, we don't get that many close-ups of Odo, but yeah, I'll have to, we'll have to check. Um, I so like that they haven't had him change into. I was about his to say I, I like that. Jammies. I like that he's still in the regular uniform because I just like to pretend the DS9 uniforms were never on next gen in generations. Let's just <laughs> skip right over it. So I like having him in the other uniform because he's still on the outside of this dynamic right now. Yeah, I mean that, that makes sense. Um, I have to say, you know, with the way, I don't know if they've got Dorn and shoulder pads, but, you know, this uniform definitely makes people's shoulders look broader. Yeah. And the black on top without the shirt. I suppose my, my only real quibble with this is if the head of state and his entire, you know, parliament or whatever were convinced enough of a political action in another empire to justify making war plans you think just basic intel would have that i mean are there no klingon newspapers it, it just seems like this entire thing like how could that much be secret well my thing is you know you look at current events today uh you know we're talking about military action against syria because they've done something bad and it's like you have to make your case 
you know you don't do it unilaterally it's, it's just like one day you must tell me how you learned our plans well like all your dudes know about it and i just drank with one of them yeah you know? <laughs> yeah loose lips sink ships martok that's how <laughs> yeah here's a little human wisdom for you um anyway it's just like it's bizarre to me that the federation has no inkling of this justification right that, you know there is a founder infiltration on cardassia you know it's like have things deteriorated that much between the klingons and the federation is the federation so lackadaisical as far as gathering intelligence in you know from a region that they're supposed to be very interested in it just it's kind of out of left field you know it yeah. would be like the u.s invading united arab emirates or something it's like we've seen nothing in the news there's no debate there's no you know it just i mean it's not the worst thing in the world like it's good that the klingons are here it's good that you know they're in inserting this sort of tension into the the series and this episode in particular Or, or, you know, maybe there's an internal reason, Klingon-wise, this makes sense. Maybe the Chancellor does have the unilateral authority to spontaneously throw an invasion party. Well, but... no, I mean, I, it, it makes sense for the Klingons. It, it, it is kind of like the Klingons of old or something. Right. It just seems really weird that the Klingons... I mean, basically, they would have done this without telling the Federation anything. Right. And that seems like a pretty serious violation of whatever treaty they have, you know? Yeah. And so why are they doing such a thing? You know, are they doing it because they've been infiltrated by changelings? Are they doing it because of some other political pressure within the Klingon Empire where Gauran is, you know, like it's sort of the tail wagging the dog kind of thing? It's like he needs a war to prop himself up. You know, I don't know. It's not really discussed here. It's it's a nuance of the political story that I feel is overlooked to some degree. Yeah, so it's like <laughs> this is the first the Federation has heard of it. You know? That's bizarre to me. And we can't warn the Cardassians because we'd be betraying the Klingons who've already betrayed us by engaging in unilateral military operations within the Federation's sphere of interest. Right. So you see all the split diopters here? Yeah. I feel like they're not really necessary in some of these shots. You know, Worf is ruminating. He doesn't need to be in pin-sharp focus. <laughs> Okay, we get some, like, nibbling around the edges of the idea that regardless of what the actual political situation is, the Klingons just wanted to attack someone. Yeah. No, and so, you know, it's nice that Worf is sort of well, he offering not... that insight, but it seems like an insight that Jadzia could have offered, or, you know, any halfway decent student of Klingon history could have offered. Well, at least they're showing him doing the job for which he was 
brought to the station. Yeah. Um, it's not like Armageddon, where the guy specifically brought for his knowledge of nuclear weapons didn't know how to disarm one. Well, I, I just feel like uh, maybe Worf should have been offering... It would have been more difficult to write, right. but more detailed political analysis, as opposed to, my people like fighting. I love all of Garrick's outfits. I almost want that one. <laughs> That's it's almost medieval in a certain way. Well, it's like that it's that deep maroon. There's something clerical about it. Do you like this scene? I like this scene for itself. I like it's well acted. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's you know. We always loved Garrick in a, you know, spy situation. Um, this feels like, like some pretty fine hair splitting. I mean, a, a, a taking it as read that warning the Cardassians directly would be a breach, a meaningful breach of the Kittimer Accords, I believe intentionally, negligently leaking the information would have much the same effect. This just well, gets everyone... So why are they doing it, you know? Are they doing it because they just feel it's wrong morally, ethically, to allow an invasion? They've changed Goldicott's hair, by the way. <laughs> it looks better. Um, I think they established their concern is that if victorious, the resulting Klingon Empire would be a new and more bad security threat, which is fine. Um, I would have liked to see them commit to we are going to warn the Cardassians, but we need to do so in a way that gives the Federation plausible deniability. I feel like the Bajorans should be like, hell yeah, let the Klingons invade. F the Cardassians, right? Yeah. I think that would have been good tension, too. We haven't, you know, we've only gotten, like, tiny little mentions of Bajor. Like, Bajor has completely receded from yeah. story prominence. Klingon fleet will reach them in one hour? I mean, what can they really prepare? Yeah. As far as responses go. Well, I think that... Speaking of which, here's like, uh, you know, Defender <laughs> <laughs> graphics. Well, I, I think uh, they, they kind of clarified that the outlying colonies were overrun immediately, but um, yeah. the Klingons did not get as far into Cardassian space as they would have had it been a complete surprise. So here's our sort of political stuff. Uh, Federation condemns the invasion. Gowron expels Federation. Uh, treaty is nullified. Do you think any of this stuff matters to a non-Star Trek fan? Um... You know, think, it's like it seems like they're trying to uh, achieve this stated goal of shaking things up, you know, uh, making something, making a, a previous friendly, now a villain, sort of. Um, 
But to me, you know, if you're not only a casual Star Trek fan, it's like this 48 minutes, all it's done is establish that the Klingons are what you thought they were. <laughs> you know, I wonder what Roddenberry would think of this. You know, like his whole his whole thing with the Klingons in TNG was that former enemies have become friends, you know, uh, and that that's an indication of progress in the universe. Um, how do you feel about the Klingons going back to their antagonistic status? Um, I, I find it interesting. Like, I, I, you know, enemies can become friends, friends can become enemies. It, I mean... Or frenemies. Or frenemies, yes. Um, wh where do you keep your frenemies? You keep your friends close to you and your enemies closer. Where in the spectrum does one's frenemies go? When you have frenemies, you keep them in the list on Facebook where they don't see everything. <laughs> but they see some things. You keep uh, them at a moderate distance. I would have loved to have seen this entire geopolitical upheaval play out over social media. That would have been awesome. Um, I'm fine with all of this because, you know, it's just interesting. It's dramatic. There's stuff happening. I think this is also what is the 45-minute mark is like the Kittimer chord line would be the act break um, when they re-air. Yeah, so it does seem like they still, just for syndication's sake, they tried to break it up a bit. Um, I and think, so this is the opening scene of episode two, you know. Right. I, I think it works because for the casual viewer, lines like that and the buildup clearly indicate the gravity of the situation. Yeah, I mean, they are explaining it. So, I agree that it works as drama. I'm, I'm just kind of ruminating on how much of this is for casual fans versus how much of this is for TNG fans. Well, even as a long-term viewer, the Klingons did not feature prominently in Deep Space Nine, but for the episode that, you know, is, is more about Dax and than anything. You know, or it's not about the Klingon Empire, which is those three Klingons. I felt this was like acclimatizing even like a long-term Deep Space Nine viewer to the reintroduction of the Klingons without yeah. taking all of the Klingon history as read. You know, yeah, now... Why is invading Cardassia wrong? That's what I want to hear. You know? Well, I would say aside from like general Federation morality about we do not solve our problems with large-scale invasions... I think they've stated their fears that a successful invasion of Cardassia would trigger later bigger problems down the road when a more powerful Klingon and more militant Klingon empire decides that other races are now also, you know, have been taken over by the Dominion. Well, it's just like the Klingons are saying that they're fighting for the Alpha Quadrant, you know? It sounds like they, they're on le the level yeah. as far as their motivation, you know? And so, I, like, is it really wrong? Like, maybe it's a bit rash, you know, but it doesn't seem wrong necessarily. It, it might have been better if they had said it was wrong because of the same reason that the uh, Romulan Obsidian Order right. uh, invasion of the Founders' homeworld was wrong because it was just dumb, like it wasn't planned very well. But... I, I don't know. I, I'm just having a hard time seeing it as wrong, necessarily. 
it's it's like it's very neocon you know it's it's like maybe something that george w bush would endorse but i want to i want to hear more about the wrongness of it the chief always has that big beer and it looks like it's real beer I don't think they can make that foam. Yeah, I, I believe for Guinness in particular. Um, there, the I mean, this, this is like a pilsner. But yeah, the, um, the, the, uh, there's a show, there's a British show coupling where the actor always wanted Guinness because the Guinness had to be real; they couldn't fake it. So he got actual Guinness on set. Yeah. And, and this is a good scene. I, I, I like I like that um, Worf would counsel one of his friends from the Enterprise about this decision. I'm sure they'll be building a new one soon. It will not be the same. This scene is a little bit weird to me because it seems like the reason he's doing it is because it's not the Enterprise anymore. Like, what, what did he do before the Enterprise? He, uh, he was a pretty young officer. I don't think it, it's not off the wall that he didn't have that many. He was posters. Lieutenant Junior Grade. You know. So maybe two, three years out of the I think the character supposed to be in his, you know, late-ish twenties, right? Right now? No, in in uh, scene in one. Counter at Farpoint, yeah, yeah, sure. It seemed like he would have had a couple years on some other ship. So we're introduced to the Nibarite Alliance. The eyebrows are kind of distracting me. <laughs> Do you feel like it's cheap to, like, sort of undo all of the progress that the Worf character has had as far as, like, redemption and all that stuff? Or do you think it, it's actually effective, you know, having Gauran rescind all of his privileges and rights and stuff um it adds a dimension to the klingons that i think has always been there that is much like as evidenced by the whole discommendation plot in the first place as, as much as klingons espouse honor it's as much a weapon in and of itself as anything else in the empire so there's a certain you know hypocrisy and yeah it seems like they're very dishonorable in their use of honor to right. be dicks to other right. klingons and I eventually really like my one of my favorite Esri scenes is when she tells Worf the Empire is dying and it deserves to die. That's a great fucking scene. Um, so I, I I like it and I, I like that because um, Gowron was introduced as the like cagey, politically savvy, um, you know, opponent to Duras, but we didn't know much about him and there was a reasonable chance that he might have been the one to you know kill Kimpek and he threatened to kill Kalar. So like he's not like he kind of became the like a better guy you know especially in comparison to the Duras but you know like I, he's a he's a politically opportunistic jerk and they've done the groundwork for that too like when uh, when in unification uh Galron's rewriting the history books to downplay the role of the federation like that that's all the piece yeah Oh, so I, did, I did like that line, by the way, talking about installing an overseer and putting down resistance and stuff like that. 
it was reminiscent of uh, the Organians. Yeah, yeah. TOS. Uh, and now we and we we had a brief scene with uh, Ducat earlier, and we have more Ducat coming. I mean, you've got Garrick and Ducat, and that's just never going to be a bad episode. Yeah. Maybe that's part of another reason why I feel um, this episode is largely successful in its goals. It does spend some time kind of laundry listing the characters and their what I did last summer, and it does seem to pull in a lot of guest stars, either recurring or now going to be recurring characters. But like even Garrick and Ducat don't feel like, oh, here's guest stars that everyone likes, let's bring them in. Like It all works in the broader story, that there's a reason why all these people are here. Yeah, I agree with that. And since they're characters I love watching, I'm certainly not going to begrudge them there doing that. Some nice uh, computer graphics of the station. Yeah, so here's the thing that I feel should be said. It's like, if the Klingons are right, then we're helping the founders, you know? It, it just, it's like, it seems taken as so given that the Klingons are wrong to invade Cardassia. If they're actually going to be attacking the founders, then it seems like they're right. And someone should say so. I think even if you confirmed that the Cardassian government had been toppled by the founders and replaced by them, I still think the Federation response would not be to invade and not sanction an invasion. They would want another solution. I just think it's a more interesting story if they were to have more support for the Klingons, whether it's from Bajor or from, you know, individual Starfleet personnel. Okay. I like her outfit here better than her blue dress. And, you know, they're going to kiss here, everybody. Uh, so I'm taking this to be their first real kiss. Like, they didn't do it earlier. They got interrupted, right? Yeah. Well, especially if they see each other every, you know, two, three weeks. But yeah, I could, that's plausible. I like how the kiss starts, but I think they linger on some, some of this, like, super Frenchy action. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm just not used to such uh, passionate kissing in Star Trek. Well, something I, I've always liked about Penny Johnson is she, she just infuses all of her lines with this. She... She never stumbles over the line. It never feels out of place. She's just very warm and interesting and, like, engaging. And I, so I, I believe her romances because it's like, oh, I actually buy that you feel these feelings. Okay, talking about bad hair, they, like, slicked it back and tried to do something in the back there on that uh, security guard. That's uh, That was not a flattering haircut. No, I agree. Keep an eye out for Klingon ships, cloaked or otherwise. 
I feel like this line's a little creaky. Yeah. Like, they're just reintroducing the idea that, oh, it has a cloaking device, and it's strange. Is it really that different? The light's kind of blue. And since when is Bashir so uh, concerned about the political situation? Yeah, I think the writers included this line as hanging a lantern on the problem because they did establish the cloak was for use in the Gamma Quadrant only, and now we're going to be using it all the damn time. Yeah. Uh, so they just hung a lantern on the line. We know, we don't care, shut up. I just wonder if it should have been someone, someone else delivering yeah. it. I, I always like uh, any of the scenes with O'Brien and the guts of Ops because all the paneling always looks awesome. Yeah, it's a really interesting little cubby hole that they've got. It must have a cutaway for them to fit the camera along yeah. the side. Um, but you can see from above, it's got like this sort of snaking. You can see it right yeah. here. It's like crooked. It's really interesting. So there's some wreckage. Another split diopter effect. I do like that the doctor is concerned with survivors. This isn't a great doctor episode. He doesn't get a lot to do. Um, he had a nice scene with Garrick. He's just sort of like on the ship. <laughs> Which has happened in many other episodes. Yeah. You know, it's like, and for some reason the doctor's on the bridge. I do like that he's actually arguing for something here. Yeah, yeah. Here's the engineering set again. Did they have those alternating lights before? Yeah, the room was brighter, so they were less yeah. obvious. And so they pick up Ducat's distress signal. And, you know, the dilemma now becomes... Uh, I, just, I just feel like something's not quite gelling here. So the dilemma is... Cisco and the Defiant crew really want to save Ducat and the Datapa Council. Why? Did, did they really feel like it's... It's worth totally effing up their alliance with the Klingons in order to do this. It's like, okay, take it from both possibilities. If the Cardassians have been overrun by the Founders, then it's a good thing that they get their butts kicked by the Klingons. If they haven't been overrun by the Founders, then the Federation is fighting Klingons and spilling Klingon blood uh, for what? To prop up a belligerent state? 
Well, didn't they establish that the Klingon, the Cardassian government, had been overthrown by civil by civilian government enemy anyway? I mean, that would be a reason the Federation would want that to stay in place. They were yeah, happy, but apparently they didn't know it until they just talked to Dukat. You know, it, it's just like the Federation motivation is very murky for me in this, and it's it's very strange to me that they would be willing. That's a really great shot. Though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love the bird of prey tumbling off screen. It's beautiful. Um, I, I just, I'm imagining like the U.S. firing on Russian uh, boats or something in in the Persian Gulf because the Russians were defending Syria or something. It's like I, I just feel like it would never get to this point. You know, someone would just say, you know what? The Cardassians just aren't that important. They can go fuck themselves. We're well, not like going to I, I think the conversation in the wardroom seemed to indicate that there was a fear of the, what it would happen if, if the Klingon Empire successfully conquers Cardassia. Like, what the long-term implications of that would be. That the balance of power would be so tipped or the Klingons might choose the Federation or Bajor as their next target, that, that they need to be stopped, this expansionist policy now. That is also a beautiful shot. That was very well done. Yeah. Um, it's clear they didn't blow up the model, yeah. but it, it was really well staged, really cool angles, uh, nice visual effects on the weapons. But do you see, like, they've just killed, like, hundreds of Klingons. Yeah. It just seems like they've crossed a line, and I don't quite get why they're crossing it. Because now it's like, okay, the Klingons overtake Cardassia, the balance of power is disturbed, I get that. But how is it any less disturbed by the Federation being in out-and-out war against the Klingon Empire when they have the Dominion threat? It just seems like the relationship with the Klingon Empire is so much more important than any other concern, including the Cardassians. You know, it just seems like the balance of power is more important to maintain so that there's a united front against the Dominion. I get that. I, I, I think it would have been helped had they just discussed it more explicitly. I, I think that's what's really missing. I, I feel, you know, in a 90-minute episode, they spent like five minutes in the teaser doing nothing. They could have spent two of those five minutes really, you know, having a deep, intelligent conversation about the politics of the situation. I'm not saying it's fatal to the episode. Clearly, it's interesting enough for me to think about, you know. I'm not like, oh, God, I can't stand this, you know. Like, I want to know. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm interested in the story, and I just feel like they're not delivering. So there's this idea that this has, they have like ablative hull armor that can withstand a pounding without shields. This is another great. I mean, like the, the effects work has been gorgeous uh, so far this episode. Yeah, really like the Vorchow class model. I like the trailer of stuff coming out of the Cardassian ship before it exploded. 
Is this like the mess hall? I think so. It's it can't be sick bay. It's not big enough. Has his uniform changed? I don't think it has. Maybe the under material is a little uh, more flexible, but I, that, that would be the only change I could think of. He's got quite a rotating little chair there, doesn't he? <laughs> More like Kirk. <laughs> yeah. So there's this joke about whether Ducat's going to complain or what. It's all right. Yeah, it's cute. I do like this line. He's not the Klingon you should be worried about. And they show the pursuing Klingon vessels. It looks like they're gaming. Yeah. Meanwhile, back on the station... Okay, so I'm sure you love this scene, and uh, I do too. Yeah. Let's discuss why we love it. Well, it's two great actors, two great characters. It's just, you know, it's going to be gangbusters just any time these two men are in the room together. Um, but it's such a great encapsulation of Deep Space Nine's take on Star Trek for me that it, 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 like, this scene writ small is what I like about Deep Space Nine, is this exploration of the Federation and Star Trek's ethos from another perspective. So I, I think there's just a really interesting idea packaged in this conversation. Well, and it actually develops uh, Cork as a character. You know, he's talking about how he's a people person. And, you know, that's why he is where he is. So we are actually learning about Cork too. So it's not just the sort of inorganic uh let's discuss what we feel about the federation so it feels like a real conversation so i like that yeah so work has a cousin gala so my only hope is the federation yeah, and I like, you know, so Garrick is a Cardassian. He is, at least on some level, a patriot. You know, he wants the Cardassians to persevere, but he has to rely on the Federation. Like, do you think it's carbonated? Yeah. It's vile, <laughs> bubbly and cloying. <laughs> if you drink enough of it, you begin to like it. Now, I guess this wasn't the total introduction of root beer, because, of course, Nog was right. ordering it. 
um, it's just a really good spin on the idea. And it's showing you that the writers are finally, finally thinking, or at least are willing to write on a deeper level about themes, you know, like for so much of the first couple seasons, it was like, we're just recycling ideas that could have been done on TNG, you know, whereas this is a right. totally deep space nine story. And granted the, the sci-fi here is probably related basically to the whole shapeshifter thing. You know, yeah. are there, inf are there infiltrators? You know, because otherwise it's just a political story. Uh, but it has themes, you know. It has some richness to it. It's also one of the best um, encapsulated... One of my big problems, particularly when you hear about poverty-stricken worlds near the Federation, it's like, why not just go to the Federation? Either they have a really draconian immigration policy, or you're all just idiots. Yeah. Like, who would grow up on a poor world when... You know, just get to the Federation. They have everything. When you hear Garrick and Cork talk like that, you you at least get a sense of why someone's philosophically different different view of the universe would be enough to make them not want to run off and join the Federation. Yeah. That was a really great shot of the Vorcha dipping under the station. I was like that shot. It seems weird to me that the Klingon fleet is sort of like all in one spot. Yeah, right. It seems like they should be surrounding the station. Uh, and I always, every time Deep Space Nine has faced a crisis, the relief fleet is always like days away. When really, it should just live at Deep Space Nine. It is at it's the a mouth space of the station. Right, and at the mouth of the wormhole, there is no reason not to have a fleet there. Yeah. Or like four or five ships, anyway. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not a whole fleet. So this is a nice scene of the Doctor discussing how Klingons fight. Uh, however, it's going to lead to one of my most hated of uh, phenomena, especially in Deep Space Nine, and that is the Trek Fu battle, in which humans, who have been established as weaker than basically everybody, yeah, whether it's Vulcans, Romulans, Klingons, or Borg, you know having fistfights with people and winning. I, I just hate that. I hate that so much because it's so unrealistic and it drags me out of the story every time it happens, you know? And I'm just like, oh, God, here they go again, and the protagonists have to win the fight, you know? It's, I, I just I long for a fight in which they're like, you know what? We can't take these guys hand-to-hand. -hand. Let's be devious. Let's be nasty. Let's be gorillas. Let's do something. Let's cheat. You know? I, it, it, does it bother you? It just it grinds me to no end that these people who live in the Federation, you know, we've just had a scene establishing how bright and bubbly and happy and shiny and wonderful the Federation is, that they could take on an effing Klingon hand-to-hand -hand and knock them unconscious, you know? Uh, especially like, okay, maybe Kira has been in some fisticuffs before, but like Bashir, no way. He's getting his ass handed to him. You know, he's gonna get his ass kicked from here. Well, doesn't to the next he fire thing. a phaser? Yeah, maybe. This scene always cracks me up. 
Apparently we've gotten rid of the prohibition against firearms. Yeah. Uh, although, yeah, I do like the IOU, basically. This looks like it was made with markers. <laughs> I'll kill him with what? That that always cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a well done scene. It, it, for for anyone else doing any type of dramatic writing, that's good comic relief. It's a nice in character moment that doesn't derail the action, but does provide a momentary breath in the in the building tension. Good comic relief. Why are the Klingons allowing? these civilians to leave the station yeah i think that was just a um what's the for, I, I think they depicted the fleet as being visually too close to the station like i i read that as like the fleet wasn't there like there was time for this type of preparation well you know they talked before the defiant left about evacuating some civilians to the station it just seems like that should have been done already yeah And some nastiness between Ducat and Garrick. <laughs> Is Andrew Robinson gay? You know, I don't think he... Uh, he has a daughter. I mean... I, well, we okay. can see if he has a wife. Um, his daughter will be appearing in, in next week's episode, The Visitor. He's just so flamboyant. It's it's the eyes. It's, yeah. It's, it's the eyes. So they they want to... So here's Gauron's sort of repositioning. The Alpha Quadrant will be safer with the Klingons in charge of Cardassian. So they've been preparing the station for a year. They've been adding all kinds of torpedoes and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're sort of finally getting to see, you know, the teeth behind that sort of premise. And I like it. Yeah, totally. I, I also like the little line here when uh, um, Martok, like, scans the station to confirm the torpedoes. Um and he says it's a trick, an illusion created using Duranium Shadows, because that's what they used to try to trick the Cardassians in the series premiere. Yeah. We shall see. And we'll ask Warp to translate, because that is more dramatic. <laughs> he said, today is a good day to die, which I've said on many occasions, but it has been translated each time. So, very nice shots. Oh, this... I, lo I love the fact they show the scale. Yeah. That's like a D7 class. Yeah. There. Several, in fact. I have to believe these are all CGI. There's just too many models, especially that get blown up and stuff, that uh, 
Um, well, it's it's some kind of CG use of model shots. Okay. There might be actual CG ships in the very background, but I, I think I read somewhere that they, okay. they perfected some sort of way of repeating model shots. So it's a CG optical mix. And this all looks cool. Like, uh... Yeah, the turrets are neat. It seems strange to me that they would have to wait for Cisco's order. Like, I think they should have created sets with, like, gunners. Oh, like, uh, like weapon rooms out at these various points? Yeah. You know what? They've destroyed eight Klingon ships. That's like, you know, we're getting on into, like, the thousands in Klingon casualties here, you know? I don't know. It just... I get that they're raising stakes. I get that it's supposed to be uncomfortable. It just... Something about it bugs me. So that was like following a torpedo. Yeah. That ship just kind of disappeared. And uh, I believe this translated as they fight like Klingons, and uh, Gowan responds, they can die like Klingons, prepare the boarding parties. I'd like to thank whatever nerd at Memory Alpha wrote all those down. Yeah, I really questioned having scenes like that just in Klingon. You know, that, that irritates me. <laughs> if they've disabled the shield generators... What are they doing outside the ship? What do you mean? Well, what are all the other ships that were attacking previously doing? You know, are, are they, they like, still attacking? Are, are they, they like totally dismantling everything? Yeah. You know, blowing shit up? So, you know, okay, these, these phaser fights are good. Yeah, good stunt work there. I'd like to know how Batleth could hurt Odo. <laughs> well, I wish they'd just show one cutting him. You know? Right. See, okay, it's sentences like that that make you think the actor's gay. <laughs> like, Ducat holding off two Klingons with a Batleth. Uh, I don't know. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Like, they're wearing armor, you know? Is punching him in the stomach, one of his two stomachs, really going to do it? And yeah, Kira... Uh, no. I'm sorry. I like that she gets stabbed, at least. But that... Yeah. I thought her, uh, her, her stab acting was really good. Like, there's been yeah. some hokey, I'm injured acting, but that was good. That fall looked real. I like that they made sure we saw O'Brien react in pain when he hit the ground, just so we know he's not dead. <laughs> like, yeah, Cisco kicking a Klingon's ass. Bullshit. I call bullshit. I, it just... Are all these guys dead? Why are they just sitting there? Why are they just laying there? You know? 
are we to take it that the main cast of Deep Space Nine are so proficient at killing in hand-to-hand combat that they have, you know, dispatched dozens? Yeah, that's some serious Krav Maga shit right there. It just... It, it beggars belief for me, you know? This scene dragged me out of the episode. There's another split diopter effect. You know, like, they're not even bloodied with the exception of... O'Brien, yeah. It looks like he has someone else's blood on him. (laughs) (laughs) He's such a badass. Like, why are you bleeding on me? Now their shields have been weakened. Yeah, their boarding parties are contained. What? There's like a hundred Klingon ships. They should have enough boarding parties to just like suffocate the humans on this station just by beaming them all in at once. Okay, so here's sort of the lesson of the episode. You know, this is what the founders want. If we do this, the terrorists win, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that Worf uses this Kalos quote to drive the point home because it does indicate that he has an understanding that someone like Cisco might not. Right. I like the shot of Cisco on the Klingon view screen. We never we rarely get to see that. Yeah. Seems like they have their video settings done a little differently. Yeah, their their white balance is definitely different. <laughs> Like, this seems like a really dramatic and quick reversal. Another split diopter effect. It's like they've mobilized the entire Klingon fleet to do this, and now Gauron can just, like, say, oh, retreat. Well, he's at a halt. They established the Klingons don't retreat. Yeah, they, they halt their advance. I don't see how that fixes everything. Well, it doesn't. I think that's where the draw, the tension of at least this part of season four is going to derive. Yeah. So there's a galaxy class ship with some funky warp nacelles, uh, two Excelsior class and a Reliant class, uh, or whatever that class is called. No, that was Excelsior. Those were Excelsiors. No, no, the one docked. It was it was oh. a Reliant style ship. What what class is that? Oh, Nebula. Neb- no, no, no. That's the new one. Oh. It was it was the Reliant model. Oh, Miranda. Miranda class, that's it. I really don't like that lamp. It's shown up in several scenes now, and I don't like it. That blue, ugh, that's not good. So here's his old uniform. <laughs> it's interesting. I never noticed you can get a, you get an interior look at the collar. Yeah, you the, can the see tip. the magnetic yeah. hip holder. Which, hey, you know, whatever. Magnets still work in the 24th century. Yeah. There's his discharge orders.
directing construction of orbital habitats. I wonder how many orbital habitats there are around Earth. Yeah. Many as they want. They're the Federation. They have no I resources. Suppose. I guess they don't really have satellites anymore or something. I wonder if they cleared away all that space junk. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I like the basic idea that they're going for. It's like Cisco is a little further along in his maturing process than Worf, and so it makes sense that Worf would see Cisco as something of a kindred spirit in a way that he might not with Picard. Right, right. And so it, it goes some way towards sort of justifying the existence of the story. Right. The Worf character can actually grow by being here. Until I become Bajor Jesus. Yeah, well, one problem at a time. <laughs> you know, uh, well acted by Dorn. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he has a good way of delivering a line in sort of sotto voice, uh, but still imbuing it with emotion. And so Cisco is offering him a, a leg up on a posting on the venture. Ah, so here is Worf's new uniform. Do you see what I mean? It makes him look less uh, physically imposing. Hmm. Strategic operations. And he has a post in ops, even. So I, I guess, theoretically, this is worth switching from operations to command. Right. Um, like, who dictates that? Is that something Cisco dictates? Is that something that... Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. who in Starfleet puts you on a track and who in Starfleet can take you off that track and put you on a different track. Presumably it was Picard doing it for both Geordi and Worf uh, when they were junior officers under his command. Right. You know, it's like Geordi became chief engineer, Worf became chief of security and they, they both were wearing red and then they switched to yellow. Now, of course in the, uh, Voyager future from Timeless, Geordi is back in command. So when did he switch, you know? And under whose auspices did he switch? Well, maybe all captains wear red. I mean, because, you know, Janeway came up with the sciences. You could, I could see her uh, wearing a blue uniform for some time and then eventually uh, getting a red one. All right, well, so it was a very eventful uh, double episode. Um, 
you know, I've been playing devil's advocate for the whole show, you know, just pointing out things that might be questionable. But, you know, all that having been said, uh, it was it was very entertaining. Um, it's certainly better than the new movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, of course, that's not the standard to which I would hold it back then. Um, I remember, you know, as I had said before, I'd kind of fallen away from Deep Space Nine upon going to college. Uh, you know, and then when I caught up with the show, I remember, you know, I, I was worried that it was stunt casting, but I was excited by what was going on. Yeah, yeah. And um, so it, it's, it's well done in that respect. You know, there's not a whole lot of sci-fi, and I think some of the political stuff is a bit murky, uh, but the character stories are solid. Um, you know, so writing wise, I think it does what it needs to do. I, I think it sets the stage. I, I don't know that it rises to the level of, you know, some of the great, great episodes that are self-contained in their own right. You know, uh, this seems like part of a, a larger narrative and it ends on a bit of an anticlimactic note. You know, it's like all this stuff happens and it seems like, really nasty and like something you can't go back from and then they go back from it you know it's like and then things are okay i, I don't think they're okay i think they you know the klingons are staying in cardassian space the kittimer cords are no more i think there's a sense that the world has shifted and not for the better and yeah i agree i agree with that i think you know there's a definite shift but it's one of these shifts that it's like and now the narrative will calm down for a while you know it's yeah, not like that it's not like Ron Moore's Battlestar where it's like it just gets progressively and progressively more intense to the point where you can't take it anymore. You know, it's like a lot of these Star Trek stories until we get to the, maybe the heart of the Dominion War arc, you know, they tend to do this sort of like, okay, we've advanced things as far as we want to advance them. And now we're going to calm down, you know, and it, it tends to be a bit of an anticlimactic way of doing things if you're going to have continuing stories. Um, so th those are my criticisms. Uh, you know, for me, the writing is, is four ish, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, the acting, I mean, the standouts to me are, uh, Quark and Garrick in the root beer scene. Yes. Um, beyond that, there's a lot of good wharf stuff. And then there's there's some good guest acting, especially from J.G. Hertzler. Uh, Robert O'Reilly, meh. Meh. He was a little handy this time. Yeah. Um, you know, the rest of the main cast, uh, I suppose Odo might be the one that was pretty decent in his scenes with Dorn. Uh, and, I, you know, there were good Dax moments, too. Um but, you know, for me, it, it's a very Dorn-heavy episode, and I think he delivers. Yeah. Was there anybody else that stood out to you? Um, I like Dax a lot, actually. I think she was... she play, it was, it was appropriate for her character to respond to Worf the way she did, both kind of as herself and be like, okay, he's handsome, and as Curzon, who shares some of his knowledge. Yeah. Um... I like this is a pretty lackluster uh, Kira and Doctor episode, if you ask me. I would say in terms of writing, not in terms of acting. I agree with that. 
um, yeah, I mean, nobody was bad. Like nobody delivered lines poorly or anything. Nobody was unbelievable. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, we're not talking like, uh, family or, uh, chain of command or, you know, some of the great protagonist performances in Trek history. Uh, but some good stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, production wise, you can't really fault anything. They've, they've very much hit a stride as far as visual effects, uh, with the exception of those matte <laughs> matte paintings in the hallways, <laughs> so they, they just they just can't quite get the lighting right. Um, it's all there the, was even even some good changeling effects. It's all the pin lighting. It's very hard to replicate two dimensionally. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, there are some good changeling effects too. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, maybe you want to expound on what you found most wondrous and scintillating um i would say the staging of all the space battles was really gorgeous there was a like on next gen because they were filming a stationary real model with a track camera and layering it the battles tended to be fairly static it was the two ships standing there and firing at each other where this had a lot of not only were the ships moving the camera was moving amongst the ships and that looked really cool um little touches like the zosha um, recoiling when the tractor beam gets cut, or the, you know, the Vorcha dipping under the Cardassian cruiser as it explodes. Like, everything just looked neat. Um, makeup-wise, it was, it was really good. There was a lot going on, and, you know, like, a lot of Klingons, and none of them looked repetitive or half-baked. Um, yeah. Well, back to the space battles. I just, yeah. you know, you've mentioned before one of your beefs and I agree with it with the new movies is that everything's just so frenetic that you can't tell what's going on. Right. And, you know, even though this was of an order of magnitude, much more complex than anything we've seen outside of even, even more so than the movies actually, because the movie battles have tended to be, you know, one versus one. Right. You know, submarine stuff. Yeah. Big fleets of ships. Um, you can still tell what's going on. You can still, you still have a decent idea of, where ship X is, where ship Y is, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, who's winning, who's losing, you know. It, so even with that complexity, they still do a good job of having a dramatically coherent space battle, um, which, you know, the new movies have definitely failed completely and totally at achieving. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it's a four. Yeah, um, I, I'd agree with that. I, I think like redemption for me where it's like it's a ron moore story it's very dramatic it's very interesting stuff happens it falls short a little bit like it it lacks a certain you know grander point save maybe for that scene about the root beer the root beer scene which you know almost that's that's really not the point of the klingon story though you know right right the point is sort sort of an overall point about the the show as a whole but it doesn't really have tons to do with this episode right um it's not a Ron Moore story, this one, by the way. This really? Is, uh, yeah, this is, um, I believe it's Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. Mm. So they, they only sort of consulted more mm. on some Klingon stuff. You know, they asked, like, I guess Iris Stephen Bear went to him 
and asked him what he meant by the line in the Dias cast about the Klingons and the Federation. And so maybe they got a bit of, uh, you know, inspiration from more. Mm. But this was a, a very DS9 episode. And, you know, Steve, Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf are going to do a lot of Dominion War stories. Uh, so these guys are sort of the main uh, DS9 writers. Uh, Ron Moore is going to get a, stuff to do too, but... Um, you know, I mean, like, I, th I think, uh, they did a pretty decent job of, uh, changing things up as they were tasked with doing, you know? And, and yeah, I think, uh, they found a way to bring in Worf that successfully camouflaged the stunt acting issues. Like, they came up with an interesting story that justified his presence and they picked the correct character who would be the interesting addition both for the show and for the character. So like, I, I was certainly far happier when they announced Worf's addition to Deep Space Nine than when they announced Seven of Nine's addition to Voyager. And I eventually came to love Jerry Ryan and the Seven of Nine character, but at the outset, I remember thinking I was more overtly annoyed at the stunt casting aspects of, of Jerry Ryan um, than I was with Michael Dorn. Well, see, I, I disagree with that uh, because when you bring in a character with seven years of history, there's just the danger that that history will totally overrun uh, what you have established, whether or not it's very good <laughs> on Deep Space Nine thus far. Whereas, you know, with Seven of Nine, like, I was irritated by uh, what seemed like a very obvious play at sexualizing the character yeah yeah but story-wise i felt like that was much more organic oh, no. my, my my concerns faded quickly for the yeah. character but it's oh, yeah. certainly in the lead-up i remember feeling more patronized by seven of nine's announced edition than by michael dorn's hmm. well yeah I, I don't know how i i think i i would feel the reverse but both of them were handled very deftly yeah. by the creative staffs. Um, so, you know, it's a definite change. It's a definite change of pace. Uh, we'll have to see with the War Focus episodes as they keep coming, whether or not it just becomes, like, Worf becomes the data of Deep Space Nine. Uh, I don't think he will. No. Um, but, it, you know, it's a danger because it's like, He's got seven years of history, and all these other characters only have three years. And so it could become an easy crutch, a writing crutch. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, I Again, I don't think it will. But if we're going to entertain the conceit that we're sort of evaluating these you know, uh, in their own right, uh, we need to be mindful of that. Um, yeah, so I think it's four, all told, uh, and you agreed, so yeah. that makes it an eight, which, you know, that's it's a very strong opening to a season. Um, it's certainly more... You know, we've had a couple multi-part season openers uh, the past few times, and, you know, they'll usually start off with a bang and then kind of peter out a bit, Um like, I really wish there had been a Bajoran Civil War. Um, but, you know, th this one is probably... I think this is the best season opener for Deep Space Nine so far. Uh, because 
I feel like you're just, as a viewer, you're kind of like, oh, I really want to find out what happens next. Right. I, I certainly remember feeling exactly that. I'm like, ooh, this is that same energy you got from Dias Cast and Improbable Cause, just a sense of energy and momentum. And it's like, ha, oh, I really want to know what happens now. Well, and it just seemed like so many of the previous seasons kind of then, it's like, oh, you started off with such a bang, and then immediately switched back to, well, let's tell one-off stories that don't necessarily fit Deep Space Nine, you know, like Storyteller or whatever the hell it was, mm. you know? So, it, like, to me, this is a signal to the viewer that, you know, things are going to be more exciting. Thank you for slogging through the first three seasons. <laughs> you know, now it's actually going to get good. Um, do you agree with that? Um, I, I, rem- I think I liked season three on the balance more than you did. Um, but I certainly did feel way of the warrior sort of cemented the sea change that seemed to be coming toward the end of season three. I'm like, okay, this is now what this show is. And I'm really excited. Oh, I think the last quarter of season three was pretty good. I was just sort of, uh, flummoxed by its return Season three's return to the, the sort of lackadaisical, meandering, bullcrap ways of Deep Space Nine seasons one and two. Um, Deep Space Nine becomes a very good show. It was just, it was really, really difficult <laughs> to get through some of those just really long stretches of crap episodes. Um, and so to me, this is signaling that that's over. You know? Yeah, I, 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 I would agree with that. Um, like, it's just, it's good to the point where, like, before there would be a good episode, and I'd be like, oh man, how are they going to screw this up? You know, now it's been consistently good to the point where I'm like, I really feel like this is going to be a decent show. Yeah. All right, well, uh, that makes an eight from the both of us. Uh, and and looking down the pipe, there's some there's some good episodes coming. Next up's going to be the visitor, and uh, that routinely rates uh, pretty high on most uh, fan lists I've seen. So looking forward to yeah, that. It's a superb show. Um, so yeah, we'll see you for the next review and uh, the next podcast. Uh, have a good night, everyone. Yep. Live long and prosper.